Arlette, you're next. Thank you for being here today. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I am going to read my question. So I have asthma, which is a psychosomatic illness and a chronic condition. And I know that healing with intent is possible, but I sometimes get frustrated because I haven't been able to heal myself. With other issues, for example, remote viewing, it is easier to come to terms with baby steps. Yet with an illness, and especially with a life-threatening one, which is not my case, it, must, it might be more frustrating when results are not evident. My questions are, which, are, which is the best way to know where um, I or anyone has to go to get rid of their illness? And how can we deal with frustration? Well, dealing with your own illness is has one extra issue in it that, that it doesn't have when you're dealing with somebody else's illness. To be effective to, in healing, you have to be able to get into that intuitive state, that being level state, and stay there, and you need to be detached from your ego. You have to not, have no wants or needs. The outcome has to be whatever the outcome is, and you just give your healing to that person, uh, you know, without reservation. But when it's yourself, you can heal yourself as well as anybody else if you can detach yourself from yourself. In other words, if you can just look at yourself just the way you would anybody else. But if you look at yourself and you're special because that's you, you see, now that ego creeps in. You start to have expectations and wants and needs. I want me to not have this. If this is, you know, so pretty soon you've lost your your sense of being detached because it's you. So, you know, so theoretically, let's say, healing yourself is as easy as healing anyone else. But actually, because of your because of your connection to yourself, it's a little harder. You know, for the very same reason, if you're um, what a heart surgeon, you don't operate on your wife. You don't operate on your children. If you're a heart surgeon, maybe the best heart surgeon, maybe the best one there ever was, you still don't operate on your own family because you're no longer detached. And when it comes time to make those hard decisions and think fast and get it right, you tend to second guess, you tend to dither around, you, you get wadded up because you care so much about the result, you see, and you can't do that. So you get somebody else to work on the people that you love best because you can't guarantee that you're going to be able to, to make those choices, make them well and make them, you know, do what you have to do when you have to do it. There's too much connection. You know, you're not detached. So that's the same thing. It's the same idea. If you, if you can detach from yourself and just work on you just like you were anybody else, Whatever the income, whatever the outcome is, that's the outcome. But I'm going to add this positive energy, whatever, and you're completely detached with it in an intuitive space. It'll work great. So that's why you're probably having frustration with working on yourself. You need to find a more detached space in which you don't have, um, what do you say? You don't have expectations or needs or wants. You just have to get rid of all of those. 
And it's a little harder to do. But once the more fear you get rid of and the more ego you get rid of, then the easier it is to be detached. So that's what you do about it. Now, when you work on other people's illnesses, you should not get frustrated because they're, they're not healing the way you want them to or the way you hope they would. Sometimes people need to keep their illness. Sometimes an illness is a part of a, a part of a life's path, something for them to deal with. You know, just like earlier, I said this COVID-19 has a lot of lessons in it for a lot of people. We can learn a lot of, of things during this, uh, this hardship that we're having to go through. And I think those things could be very positive. It, so sometimes somebody's ill because that provides them with a set of choices that they need to deal with. And in that case, if you heal them, you're basically butting in to their own evolutionary path by taking that illness away from them. In those cases, generally the way you, you know whether you're doing that, particularly in the beginning, when you're not really good at getting information out of the database about the person and why they're sick and so on, what happens is if you try to heal them and you find out it just doesn't work or won't work for long, it's like you give them all that energy, it's looking really good, and then, you know, five minutes later you look in and, oh, it's all back just the way it was. And then you do it again, and then, you know, then it's all back just the way it was, and it, like, it resists you. You kind of feel this pushback from the healing. Well, that is a message that says just leave it alone. It is what it is. It needs to be that way. They'll just have to deal with that, even if that means, you know, they're going to die or something else happens. They'll have to deal with that. And I've found from experience that if you try to overrun that, basically overrun their free will with yours, and you heal them anyway, even though that's on their path, they will just find a way to get back to that same spot. In a few months, they'll have another disease, or something else will happen, or they'll get a relapse, or they'll you know get run over by a truck in traffic. You know, something else will happen that puts them back into a, a similar situation because that's where they need to be. So even, even if you do have enough power to overrun their free will, usually it's only a temporary, you know, a, a temporary thing that they will then put themselves back in a, in a position, maybe a totally different context, but they'll put themselves back in, in the same kind of place again. So, if you we are working with somebody to heal them and it just doesn't seem to be working, it just can't seem to get traction with that person, let it go. Let it go. You may come back a week later and try again, see if see if anything's changed. And uh, in that case, what I would do for that person is just give them general good health. Rather than working on a particular illness, say, here's some energy just to help you feel better just to make your life a little more comfortable and a little easier, do with it as you will. You can use this energy, you can use this effort that I'm putting for anything you want, whether it just makes you more comfortable or whether whatever. You know, so then you just help people by giving them some real general feel good. You know, be more, be happier, you know, better attitude, be in a better space, just do that and let the rest of it go. So you can always do that. You can always give people energy and let them use it however they want to use it. And just give them a sense of, 
being happier and having a better, lighter, more positive mood, you can give them that as well. And just let the physical healing go because that's not really what's necessary. So how do you deal with frustration? You you just let it be. You can't keep pushing things that aren't working. Frustration frustration means you want something to be one some way and it's not. That's frustration. Well, that's a want of yours. That's a need of yours. That's that's your ego that wants it to be that way. I need it to be this way and it's not that way. So I'm going to try to manipulate it to be the way I want it. And if you fail and you can't and it doesn't work and they won't do it, well, you they're not your slave. You don't own them. You're not in charge of them. You know, you're not able to wave your magic wand and have them be different. So you just have to let them be whoever they are. So you deal with frustration by not needing anybody to actually be any particular way. Just let them be the way they are. Let them deal what they have to deal with and let them deal with it in their own way. Now, obviously, that's not true of young children. Young children, you don't just let them deal with it in their own way. They're very young. You have to override their free will. No, you can't run around in the street. And if you keep going out of the gate, I'll put a lock on the gate because that's what you have to do. But other than young children, you have to let people be. And if it doesn't turn out the way you want, then let it go. If you can't help, then let it, let them, let them go on. Let them try to learn whatever it is they have to learn from the situation that they're in. And if they can't learn it and they just keep flopping around and, and uh, causing misery for themselves, well, just go hold their hand and be with them. But you can't fix it. You just have to let them learn. That is the sad part of love. Love can be sad. Love isn't all joy. Sometimes the people we love are self-destructive. They continue to hurt themselves. They do things that that make their life unhappy. And we have to sit back and watch these people we love cause themselves misery. And that's sad that we have to do that. It's just sad that they are having trouble learning their lesson. But again, you can't be direct and say, here's what you need to do to fix that. (laughs) That won't help. You have to be uh, more subtle, more indirect, and just be a good example. So frustration will disappear when you no longer have requirements on the world to be a particular way. Thank you very much. That was very helpful. Go ahead, Ingo. You're, you're next with your question. Thank you. Hello. Hello, Tom. Hi, Ingo. Um, I have a question about the binaural beats. I... Um, do some exercise with them. Um, I usually don't use them that often because they keep me in a state where I can't do much. Uh, when I want to focus on something, it's like like a hand pulling me back to that I call basic state. It feels almost like a little limitation. limitation. Uh, do you know this effect? Is there anything you can do to avoid this and make the beats more usable? Um, Well, I've experienced that before. Matter of fact, I 
I uh, learned a lesson with that experience. And that lesson is that the binaural beats are like training wheels. You use them as long as they're helpful. When they stop being helpful and start restraining you, it's time to not stop using them. You don't need them anymore. You can do better without them. I learned that when I was at I was at uh, the Monroe Institute just visiting, coming back for a board meeting or something, and and the person who was the techie in charge there at the time uh, had this wonderful new sound that uh, you know was really great and people liked it and it was terrific and he wanted me to hear it to tell me so I could tell him what I thought about it because I had many many years in the, that development so he was he was interested in my opinion. And he also wanted me to do some work in the non-physical for him, do some things, help him solve some of his personal problems. So I listened to his beats and said, oh, yeah, boy, they snap you right into that theta space really, really well, really quickly. All right, now I'm going to go work on your problem. And it was the same thing. I, like, I took off to work on that problem and, like a big rubber band was attached to me and whew, pulled me right back. And I said, well, that's odd. That's never happened before. All right, let's go again. And another big rubber band just snapped me right back. So I told him, I said, hey, would you just turn that, that uh, binaural beat off and just put a little pink noise on or nothing at all? And he did. And as soon as that pink noise went on, I was gone doing the things I needed to do. And I was very effective at doing the things I needed to do. So at that was the first time that I realized that the binaural beats will take you and put you into a theta state and hold you there, period. But as you progress, you outgrow them. You can do that on your own. And now the holding you there isn't what you want. Your mind needs to go into other, maybe more complex states. It doesn't need to just sit in that four hertz state. But this binaural beat is holding you right there in that four hertz state. So I'd say take them off. You don't really need them. And you may, if, you, if you're habituated to them or you use them all the time, then you may think you need them for a while. But I suspect if you go without them, you'll find you can get to your point consciousness state very easily after a few weeks or a few months of practice. And you'll do better without the binaural beats. So they're, they're not, they're a great tool for beginners. By beginners, I mean people who haven't spent a lot of time meditating to get into a theta state and find point consciousness because they kind of nudge you into that state and hold you there. Otherwise, beginners would have a hard time getting there. And if they did get there, they'd stay there for about 30 seconds and then they'd be gone. And then they'd come back and stay there for another 10 seconds and they'd be gone. And it wouldn't be stable. When they listen to the binaural beats, it puts them there and makes it stable for them. Keeps them there so they can actually do an exercise while they're there. But it also holds you back. So good, like training wheels on a bike. Good things for beginners just learning how to ride a bike. But you're not going to be a bike rider in the Olympics if you still have training wheels on. They just, they just get in the way. Okay. I didn't use them that often. Um, and I'm used to do it without the beats. And I think maybe I try, maybe I can use them, but, uh, yeah, I go without them. Yeah. Or use them, use them for when they help you. 
but if once you get in a good state and you feel like you know you're in like you've got it all under control you know what you're doing then just turn off the volume you know if, if they're helpful because you're maybe in a noisy environment or someplace to get you started and then turn them off you don't have to listen to them through the whole thing Sometimes people do use them just because they're in a particularly difficult environment to get them started. And then uh, once they get going, they, you know, if you're listening to it through a little MP3 player, it's easy to flick your thumb and just, you know, turn the volume down or something like that. But yeah, they are, they are, uh, not for advanced work. They're just to help beginners get into that state and stay there. And my second question is about uh, letting go, one of my favorite topics. Um, I shortened the question. Um, is it possible to train how to let go of something, maybe stressful feelings? Um, can you specifically training that, like remote viewing? Or can you only reach that after you have reduced your entropy entropy enough i have short moments where i can feel how it may feels like to let go of something but this is only for a few seconds it feels very good but i can't grab or hold this this feeling yes well letting go means that you no longer have your ego attached to it which means you no longer have fear that is connecting you to that thing you're trying to let go of. Okay, so if you, as long as you have that, as long as you have that ego, that fear, that's attached to the thing you'd like to let go of, then you can't let it go. You see, so that's the problem. When we talk about letting go, again, we're talking about detaching fear and ego, the connection to whatever that thing is you want to let go of. So if you can get rid of that attachment, then letting go will be easy. And what you're doing is you're, you are, you're pushing it away enough that you get a few seconds or a little bit of time of it not being there. You're kind of pushing it out of sight. You know, sweeping the dirt under the rug, you know, putting it to where it doesn't affect you. And you're saying, oh, that feels nice. <laughs> you know, I can, I can see what that would be like not to have this burden, you know, not to carry this burden around. But there it is. That's because you still have the attachment. Your ego is still connected to that thing. There's a, you haven't severed that, that connection. There's a, there's a, a tentacle of fear someplace. And once you get rid of that connection, then letting it go is, is easy. It's just a matter of having the intent. You know, I don't need that anymore. So it's, 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 you're still connected to it in some way. You can think of that connection as like, sort of like a rubber band, you know, not sort of like the rubber band that pulls you back <laughs> into the state. It's a rubber band. Like it's like that, that rubber band is your attachment to that thing being that way, that fear, that ego, that problem, that something else. And you shove it away, but that rubber band just pulls it right back. You can't let go of it, and you need to get rid of that attachment, which means you need to take a big pair of scissors and cut that rubber band. That's that's you've gotten. That rubber band is a metaphor for the ego, or for the fear. So you just need to cut that, and then it's then you let go of it. So yes, letting go will lower your entropy. Letting go of fear, letting go of ego, 
but you have to cut your connection to it. You know, that's like um, people who are empaths sometimes get overwhelmed with all the information they get. They hear everybody's conversation. They feel everybody's feelings, and it's overwhelming that they get so much information. That's because they create a connection with everybody. They create a connection. They have kind of a, a need to know, a need to be plugged in. It's sort of like the people who watch the news all the time because they feel like they have to know everything that's going on in the world. It's a it's a need of theirs to know that. And um, you just, if you let go of the attachment and let go of that connection, then you don't have that problem. Uh, people talk about non-physical entities or other entities using their mind to to do things to people. You know, the person that's trying to give you a headache rather than take a headache away. The person who's trying to convince you to give them your money and they're using intent and so on. Well, if you have a connection to that person, if you're somehow connected, then that's the pathway by which you can be exploited. But if you don't have that connection, if you just turn that off or let it go, your ego or your fear is not connected, then they can't hurt you. They can't touch you. They can send whatever kind of negative energy they want your direction, but it just doesn't stick because you don't accept it, because you don't have that connection. But if you're afraid of them and you're afraid that they're going to be sending you stuff and you're afraid that they might make you ill, that fear is a connection to them. And with that connection, they can make you ill. See, it's a similar sort of thing. So it's easy to let go once you sever the connection you have to it with, with the ego. But until that, all you're doing is pushing it out of sight, and it always will come back. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Tom. Thank you, Inga. Guillaume, uh, go ahead with your question. Thank you. Hello there. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, uh, Tom, my question is about uh, your future book, uh, Primal Man and Primal Woman. Mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted to know if you're working at it at the moment and when uh, it will be released. And I will really like to hear some of your wisdom about uh, Man and woman relationship in that uh, time where we pass um, 24 hour on 24 hour <laughs> in quarantine with uh, our uh, sweet elf. So we'd just like to hear a bit about it. Okay. Well, to the book, I have not been writing it uh, for a long time. So it's not making any progress at all as far as getting words on paper. I just have too much else to do, and I don't have time. And the reason I say that is I do have time in little bits and pieces, you know, 15 minutes here, an hour there, that sort of thing. My day has little splotches of time scattered all through it, but it I can't write a book that way. I need to be able to write a book by sitting down and taking a day or four or five hours at least at a block, you know, to work on it, to get your mind in it, to, to, to work with it. I, I can't – some authors will write a book, like, you know, 15 minutes a day, you know, they're writing five books all at the same time and you get to do a little bit on this one, a little bit on that one. But um, the kind of things I write are a little deeper than that. And I can't do it that way. 
and I'm having trouble finding big blocks of time that I'm not required to be doing something else. So not making much progress there, but it is growing as far as, and I am still learning and coming up with things that I want to include in it all the time because I'm, I'm still, you know, being aware, still learning, still observing, seeing how things work. Uh, sometimes letting little, you know, talking with people, uh, giving them some information, see how they react to that, you know, what their attitudes are. Does it help? So I'm getting more and more information. And so the book's getting better and better in its potential, but it hasn't done much in its actuality for a while. I do have about 20 written pages that have been there for years on my website. If you go to my website, you can go to downloads, I think, and find that probably at the bottom of the list because it's been there the longest. Um, and that hasn't changed much, but that is only a very small part of the kind of the logical skeleton of what it is I'm talking about. That's maybe a five or 10%. So it, it's not really a good idea what the book's about, but a little bit of the idea of how, where I'm, how I'm approaching it. You'll get an idea there. Okay. So that's it about the, about the book. And one other thing I would say about the book is another reason that I'm not really pushing too hard, although I don't know that I could make time, even if I really, really tried to force time in my schedule. I'm not sure I could do it, but even if I could, I'm also a little concerned about the timing on publishing such a book. Um, if the timing isn't right, then it doesn't do well. So you don't want to publish something ahead of its time or after its time. You want to publish it when its time is ripe. And that's important. Otherwise, it just, you know, people won't be able to process it. So the things that I'm talking about in the book are things that will, the things that are so far off the way most people think about the nature of reality and of gender and that sort of thing that it'll be a, a big step to process it, a big step to understand it. And it's not really a good thing to do if I think the time's not ready yet. You know, people aren't quite ready yet to process that. And I don't know that they are, but I don't, if they are, they maybe just are getting, beginning to be there. So I'm not really in a big rush to push it for that reason as well. I, th I think it's still a little ahead of its time. And, uh, it won't do as much good that if if it's ahead of its time that it will do if it's on time. You know, I had that same idea with the, with the My Big Toe. You know, I, I worked on that, worked on that with the idea that these are things, these are ideas that are really, really different than what most people think about reality. You know, it's a, it's a, a very big step conceptually to go from the normal idea about the nature of reality to the, to the ideas in My Big Toe a pretty drastic uh, shift in, in attitude and in understanding. And I was a little concerned whether or not it was time, but I thought it probably would never be any better time. <laughs> that the book itself was going to be one of the things that helped make it, you know, a better time. So I thought, well, now is the time because it's not going to get much better, at least not, you know, maybe I wanted to wait for a couple of centuries. It might be a better time, but this was the, this was the time, and I didn't see any advantage in waiting. But with the gender issue, and I came to that for the same reason I did with the with the uh, the nature of reality issue. The nature of reality, I thought, was important to people to find out that why they're here. 
is to grow up, you know, and, and to get rid of fear. That that was a very important understanding for people to have. And if they had that understanding, it could make a big difference in the in their success at getting rid of their fear in this life. And I feel that's the same reason I did this book in gender. We are so terribly confused about gender. We probably are more confused about who we are as male or female today than we ever have been for the last 200,000 years that we've been crawling around, uh, you know, as a species. We're very confused now. Most of that past, we weren't confused at all. We knew exactly who and what we were and how the genders related and what it meant to be male and what it meant to be female and all the rest of it was, was very obvious and now not so much. And part of that isn't just because we're dumber than our ancestors were or, or more confused, but the environment in which our instincts and instincts tend to focus around procreation and survival. You know, that's where your instincts are wrapped around those two axles, those two things. And so we have a lot of instincts that have to do with survival and instincts that have to do with procreation. And those instincts are developed in response to an environment, right? You develop instincts that help you procreate and survive. And procreating and surviving are connected to each other. Those aren't two independent things. You know, if your species survives, you have to procreate. You have to have more being born than are being killed. Otherwise, eventually you become extinct. So instincts evolved in an environment that isn't much at all like the environment we live in today. So that's part of the problem. We're now have instincts that are 200,000 years old, or let's say even 100,000 years old, or 10,000 years, <clears throat> 10, years old, and we've got a totally different social system of interacting with each other that we're interacting in. So we have to make a, a turn. And that turn is going to be a, a major shift in attitudes and understandings that will take us from frustration and unhappiness and, you know, the war between the sexes to where we need to be, where the genders are perfect complement of each other. And we can do that again, but we've got to make this turn. So it's the same kind of thing that motivated me to make MBT. With MBT, we have to make this turn away from self-centeredness toward becoming love. Otherwise, we're just going to end up, you know, more and more dysfunction. And it's a really big turn to make. It's a very important uh, part of mankind's evolution to make that turn from self-centeredness to other-centeredness. So that was a thing that I thought was needed. And this thing with gender is the same way. It's a, it's, we have to make this, this turn and, uh, we need to understand what's going on and why and what our instincts are and what our, you know, what our gender means to us and as a, as a people and as individuals. So that's what it's about. But though we were pretty, I think, much more ready to make this turn from self-centeredness to, to other-centeredness, I'm not sure we're quite ready yet to make that turn in the gender world. I think that may be a few decades out in front of us yet. I don't think it's centuries. I think it may just be a, a decade or so out in front of us yet. So I don't know. 
Now, I don't need to wait until it's happening. I just need to wait until people are at a point where they can actually read and understand. So that's part of where I am on the on the book. Now, okay, what about what about you and your significant others? You know, your family, your you know, your husbands, your wives, your children, your parents. You know, the people that are close to you. Now that you are all in lockdown, um, you know, this is going to offer a great learning opportunity. Great learning opportunity. Before we have we had these busy lives that kind of. You might think of them as a rut. It's the things we do. Okay, every day we get up, you know, we eat breakfast, we go to work. Then we come back at 5 or 6 o'clock at night, <clears throat> and we interact with each other a little bit. Usually don't say a word. Everybody sits on a couch and stares at a television set. And then we go to bed. Then we get up the next morning. We go to work, come back, sit down, stare at a television set, and so on. When we have that kind of a life, it's real easy for us to accommodate ourselves to relationships that we don't really have to spend much time involved with. All right, we have to sit next to each other while we're watching TV. Well, that's not a whole lot of interaction going on there unless maybe we discuss the TV show. We, uh, you know, we have dinner and breakfast with each other, probably not lunch because we're at work when that happens. And the interaction really required for a good relationship has a hard time taking place in that kind of a lifestyle. So you have children who think that their little social clique that they're in is the, are the only important people on the planet. Everybody else is just in the way, including their parents and including their siblings. And if your children have a year or two difference, then they don't, you know, they have their own little clique, their own little group that they're in. And except for that little group of their peers, everybody else just isn't that important. Everybody else is, if anything, they're more nuisance. You know, the parents always want them to do this and don't wear that and wear that. And yes, you can go. No, you can't. You know, the parents are always there making rules and that's a nuisance. You know, the, uh, you know, the other kids that are not in their clique, well, they're all a nuisance. So you have people growing up in these little cliques and social groups instead of growing up in a family that's a social group. You know, the kids fight with each other because their social groups don't include their siblings. Their social groups is that little clique at school. School doesn't have anything to do about learning. School is a social you know is social time. Learning's on the side. And you know, the, the kids think the parents just don't understand and they don't get it. And the parents think the kids just aren't trying and they're not, uh, you know, they need to grow up and see a bigger picture. And the whole family is, is really not together as a family. It's like people sharing space. It's almost like, like, you know, you and three other roommates get an apartment someplace. You know, it's, it's that kind. Everybody tries to stay polite to each other just because that makes life easier. But they're not really sharing themselves with each other. And now that they're going to have to stay home together, that's going to throw a, a, you know, a wrench in the monkey works or a monkey wrench in the works or something, whatever that metaphor is. That's going to create issues. Suddenly there's going to be 
problems. You know, now you and the kids and your significant other are all, you know, in the house together 24-7. And there's a lot to learn there. There's a lot to learn. And the things that are most to learn are the things to let other people be who they are. Don't manipulate. Don't try to fix people by making the way you know they should be. Try to work with what you've got and who they are rather than turn them into something that you think is better. You're always better to give suggestions and to give point out um, different choices than you are to tell somebody what to do and how to do it. Particularly if they're teenagers, you know, that's trying to tell them what to do and how to do it is like throwing gasoline on a fire. That just is not a good thing to do. You just force them to do just the opposite of what you want just because they have, they can't do what you told them to do because that would be giving up their own sense of self-worth. They are at a time where they're trying to define who they are. And following directions and following orders doesn't help them define who they are. So however old your children are or however uh, long you've been uh, married to your spouse or, or just not married to your, to your uh, significant other or whatever, this will change things. It's going to change the social dynamics, and that can be good or bad. If it changes it for good, people start to realize real interactions and relationships take time. You really have to share things, and sharing things has a lot to do with giving, not taking. It's like, okay, how can I get everybody else to do and be just the way I want them? That's just self-centeredness, you know. How can I help everybody else optimize what it is they are and what they want to do? That's different. So some people will crash and burn because they won't be able to rise to the occasion and give rather than take. They can't just walk out. Well, I got to go to the office now. I got to work late. See you later. Okay. They'll have to deal with it because they're living with it. And if even 10 or 20% of the people figure that out and actually, you know, reinvigorate their relationships, well, that will be wonderful. That would be wonderful. And hopefully there won't be too many that will immediately get a divorce as soon as they're able to get out of the house because, uh, you know, they've gone the other way and they've, they've both gotten more and more self-centered because, because both of them want it their way. Both of them need it their way. And, uh, they can't, uh, they can't get along because it's not their way. Of course, their way, of course, is the right way. It's not just that they're being selfish and they just want their way, but their way is the right way. It's the proper way. It's the way that needs to be done. That's the way everybody sees it. Everybody sees whatever their way is as the right way that needs to be done and that everybody else is doing it the wrong way unless it's <laughs> because it's not their way. So, you know, I think there's a big opportunity. Some will miss it and they'll de-evolve into more self-centeredness, but I think a whole lot more will actually take this opportunity and, and realize that they have to give some more. They have to connect. They have to open up. They have to communicate. They have to uh, 
not be so self-centered and so distracted. They're part of a family, and that family works together. Uh, It's a whole lot better, you know, and the children have to learn that they're, you know, that their parents aren't stupid, you know, that their parents, you know, have have uh, uh, more experience and that they can talk to their parents and that their parents will actually listen to them and not tell them what to do and how to do it, but will listen to them and give them some, maybe some advice or some point out some other, op, you know, some other ways of looking at a problem, but won't tell them what to do or how to do it. So these are the things that I hope will will kind of come out of this. Families now spending time with each other. Oh no, I'm going to have to spend time with my family. My God, what am I going to do? You know, well, what you're going to have to do is grow up or it's going to be a disaster. If you don't, you're going to have to evolve to spend time closely with these people that you live with and grow up. So there's a lot of positive things that could come out of this experience that we're having. We just need to find them and reach them and develop them and, and, you know, grow with them. Change is the, is the tool of growth. Well, we're all now doing things differently than we've ever done before. Change is upon us. Well, let's, let's learn from that change. Turn that change into growth. Thank you, Tom. Um, don't know if I can, uh, add something about that. Sure. Oops. Um, yes, uh, I've read uh, a lot uh, about uh, this future book and I aired a lot in some interviews or anything, uh, but I didn't hear anything about sex and sexual, sexual relationship uh, in those talk or in the preview book you have on your website. Could you maybe talk a bit about sex in general, because uh, there's a lot of cultural belief around sexuality and there's a lot of religious belief. Um, I won't name any right now, but I would like maybe if you could add something about that, because I didn't hear anything from MBD about this. Thank you. Okay. Well, just very generally, um, and that will be more of that in the, in this book. When I finally get around to writing this book, there will be quite a bit about sexuality. And I have done a little experimenting with people in that uh, there have been people who have come to me and said, well, I want to, you know, would you, uh, would you talk to me about sex and sexuality and, and so on? And I have done that with them and haven't not yet gotten feedback to see whether I told them too much. They couldn't process or whether I, you know, what it was, was helpful. So I haven't gotten that feedback yet. But in general, you know, where we, you know, sexuality is a natural part of being human. Human is an avatar. The avatar is according to the rule set. It evolved. You know, that's just their usual, you know, evolution. It evolved to be what it is because the rule set is what it is. So humans have to procreate. They have sex to procreate. In order for that procreation to keep up with the very violent environment they were in, they needed to procreate and be good at it because otherwise the species would have gone extinct. All those that didn't procreate sufficiently, we don't know about them because they've been extinct for a long time. They didn't make it. So sexuality is a very big part of our instincts. It's natural to us. And 
part of the problem we have with it is that if you get crossways, which means you get to where you're incompatible, your behavior and your thoughts and your beliefs are incompatible with your instincts, it will make you neurotic. It will create anxiety. It will make you feel like you're doing it wrong. It will make you feel inadequate. You won't feel right. So we have these these procreation instinct instincts that are about our sexuality. And if we get crosswise with those, then we don't feel right because instincts are strong things. You know, if you get crosswise and you, your instinct says you need to go this, you need to go right and you go left instead, that'll leave you feeling wrong. You'll have a sense of wrongness. You'll have a sense of not done it right. You'll have a sense of failure. You'll have a sense of being inadequate. Because those instincts are strong. They're deep in us. That's what we are. It's how we are. So we have to understand that our instincts are old, created from a different environment. Sometimes our environment now, sometimes our, our understanding now is crosswise with our instincts. And in which case, we get neurotic about sexuality. You know, that's Jesus country I live in, the USA, you know, it's, it's normal. It's natural to be neurotic about sexuality. You know, most everybody's neurotic about sexuality. It comes from our, our history that was, we were settled primarily by religious groups that were fleeing, being, being thrown out of Europe, I guess. They were uh, chased out of Europe for their ideas that were unacceptable. And uh, so they all came to America, and that's where a lot of our population started. So we tend to be a lot more provincial, a lot more, um, can I say, um, backward in our sense of sexuality than, say, do Europeans. Because after all, you got all rid of all those people <laughs> and sent them over to America. Uh, so Europeans have a much... Uh, uh, what can we say, uh, a much healthier attitude towards sexuality than, than Americans do in general. It's not such a big taboo concept or structure in Europe as it is here. So you have things like that. But when you get, when your culture sets you crosswise to your instincts, you feel bad. You are unhappy. You're insecure. It's just not a good place to be. So here we have a, a culture that wants us to be in a way that makes us neurotic if we abide by our culture. Well, we're, we're stuck in situations like that. That's why we have such trouble with gender right now. That's one of the reasons we have so much trouble with gender right now. Gender and our culture don't get along with each other too well. And those instincts will be the last voice because that's tied into your DNA. You, know, you can't do anything about that. So we need to learn to be able to meet all of our social connections and commitments and responsibilities and still say, still stay in, in line or in consonance with our instincts. Now, that doesn't mean that we just have to do whatever our instincts say. It means we have to acknowledge this is the way my instincts are pushing me, 
I acknowledge that, and I choose to do something different. That's okay. That's how you change instincts. You choose to do something different. But that's, and you know, and we need to do that. So it's not just we do whatever we want our instincts to do, but we have to acknowledge that the instinct's there and that we do have these feelings and that it is the way it is. We can't just deny it because that's what makes you crazy. That's what makes you neurotic. So you have to accept it. You have to understand it. You have to work with it. You have to realize that everybody has similar kinds of feelings and nudges and pushes and ideas. And even if the culture disagrees with that, you have to understand that they are there. This is These are feelings that are there. This is something that needs to be expressed, and you need to find ways to express it that will still work within your culture. Well, the instincts are going to have to change some, and the culture is going to have to change some. Both of those are going to have to change. And we do that not just being a slave to our instincts, but by embracing them, accepting them, and then working with them within the context of a different environment that we have now. So that's what I mean by working with your instincts, not necessarily being a slave to them, but working with them. And that's kind of you know, where the sexuality comes in. So we have, we are so confused in our, and our gender and what it means to be male or female. And, and uh, we've created so much self-centeredness that has gotten wrapped around gender now that didn't exist before. This so-called war between the sexes is uh, just created a lot of self-centeredness on both sides that uh, is unfortunate. And we'll have to overcome it. We'll have to outgrow it. But it's necessary that we go through this turn, this change. You know, environment's different. We need to deal with things differently. Instincts need to change, but they don't change on a dime. Instincts are going to be around for a long time. So you'll learn to live with them, accept them. Don't try to bury them. Don't try to deny them. Don't try to call them evil or bad or anything else. It's just the way they are. Accept it doesn't mean you have to be a slave to it. So that's kind of about sexuality in a, in a general way. We're sexual beings. That's part of being a human being. It's necessary for our species to have survived. In fact, the reason we, Homo sapiens, were the, the winner, the grand winner, in the hominid sweepstakes, you know, there was others. There was not only Neanderthal, but there were probably a half a dozen or more different human types walking around and competing with each other. It wasn't just Homo sapien. Homo sapien was one out of a half dozen or maybe a dozen. I don't know. There were, there were, uh, we find more and more all the time. Human beings, Homo sapiens being one. And Homo sapiens is the only one left. And it's not because we were smarter than everybody else. It's not because we were bigger and stronger and more warlike than everybody else that so we killed the rest of them off. That's not what happened. We outbred them. We simply had more surviving children more often than any of the others. And we outbred them, so we just overwhelmed them genetically. 
we subsumed them mostly, interbred with them, and they're part of our stock, but we were the many, they were the few, and they just got lost in the genetic sweepstakes. So here's Homo sapiens. Because of our, our procreation instincts and the way that we, the, the, what should I say, the tools or the, or the way that we uh, evolved to procreate, that's why Homo sapiens was the winner. That's why we're here and they're not. That's why we have seven and a half billion people on the planet now. Making babies is something we're very good at, something we have, uh, you know, we have all the instincts and all of the, the, uh, um, the hard wiring to do that. So, you know, we, we, the winners were the sexy ones, you know, the ones that could create more children faster that we just overwhelmed everybody else. So we have these instincts that are a very strong part of our heritage. We homo sapiens have them and we need to live with them gracefully and joyfully and find pleasure in them. That's, that's our task and we need to do that within an environment that's quite different now. Okay, that's probably enough about that. Hopefully I've told you something that was interesting that, uh, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to wait until I get that out. Um, we'll see. I'm still working on it. Thank you so much. Uh, would like to see that this book, uh, pretty soon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so would I, I'd like to spend more time writing it and hopefully the time will be right when I get it done. <laughs>